from KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Months of protests this year over police killings of black people have prompted cities and counties throughout the Bay Area to put police reform on the ballot this November. We'll get the details on those measures. But first, President Trump took to Twitter last night condemning Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer for not thanking him after the FBI foiled a right-wing domestic terrorist plot to kidnap her, as Democrats slammed the president for enabling the attempted attack with his rhetoric. Meanwhile, the White House still refuses to disclose the president's COVID test results. We'll try to make sense of it all. And that's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. This morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced legislation to create a commission to allow Congress to intervene under the 25th Amendment and remove future presidents from office. A president's fitness for office must be determined by science and facts. This legislation applies to future presidents, but we are reminded of the necessity of action by the health of the current president. The announcement came as the White House coronavirus outbreak continues to widen and officials remain evasive about the president's test results before and after his hospitalization for COVID-19. Meanwhile, the FBI announced yesterday it foiled a right-wing domestic terrorist plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And Senate confirmation hearings on Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett began on Monday over Democrats' strenuous objection that the winner of the November election should pick the nominee. We'll unpack the latest news and joining us, Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for the New York Times. Good morning, Peter, and welcome. Good morning. How are you? Okay. Well, despite a little oral surgery, I'm doing okay, and I'm glad to be with you. I'm also going to welcome Susan Glasser, staff writer with The New Yorker. And Susan, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Glad to have you both. And they are both the co-authors of a new book called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. I just got the PDF recently, but I have had enough time to read what I believe is a very nuanced and detailed portrait of James Baker, who was enormously influential in shaping uh, the way politics have gone, uh, certainly in uh, recent years and continue to go. Let me thank you both for being here. And let me launch right into this by asking whether you think um, there's going to be a second debate, a virtual debate. Uh, and I say whether you think that way, because the president has said he will not hold a virtual debate, a second debate. But he also said he wouldn't meet with uh, Congress or go forward with any stimulus package talk. Well, that's true. Everything changes by the day and sometimes by the hour. But at the moment, there's a standoff about the second debate. The debate com uh, commission that organized them says that it will be virtual and they're not changing their mind about it. The president says he won't accept that and won't participate in a virtual uh, uh, event and that his doctor has cleared him to participate in public events as of tomorrow and therefore that the vice president should meet him in Miami next Thursday anyway. So I think that at the moment, uh, uh, I wouldn't count on there being debate, but you know, anything can happen. And anything may happen with the stimulus talks as well, Susan Glasser, are they moving forward? There's talk about a $1,200 new uh, stimulus check and also talk about uh, well, mainly from Larry Kudlow uh, about uh, the president having standalone bills on unemployment, for example, in schools. 
Yeah, I think the Democrats have rejected that approach. Uh, they've been trying to get uh, Republicans to come to the table. And, and the largest obstacle has been uh, the president as well as Senate Republicans. Uh, in fact, just two days ago, the president said he was canceling all uh, talks before the election. And then he now appears to have changed his mind again. Uh, you know, it's, it's always been a political mystery to me why the president has not been more eager uh, to make a deal with Democrats and to, you know, usually politicians in election year are eager to send money uh, to their constituents and see that as, as politically beneficial to them. I, it's been kind of perplexing and, of course, really worrisome that there's been no new stimulus passed by our government since the end of April. So I, I'm dubious, frankly, at this point that uh, there can be any actual final passage of a, a big sweeping deal like this before the election with it so few days to go. But I think uh, both sides have a certain impetus in at least appearing to take this seriously. So I think we may see them continuing to talk over the next few days. Well, since Susan mentions mystery and perplexity, uh, Peter, let me go to you about the mystery and perplexity over the president's testing with coronavirus. Uh, at this point, it's almost... Uh, well, it appears to be to many to be a cover up. We don't know and nothing is transparent. Well, that's exactly right. They haven't yet told us the last time he had a negative test. They wouldn't tell us the first time he had a positive test. And it's really hard to know the course of a disease unless you know those things, right? The doctor, uh, the White House physician who is a Navy doctor and not a, uh, a political person has acted almost as if he's a political person by releasing statements that even he acknowledged were uh, particularly rosy in order to satisfy his patient, uh, releasing only partial information, holding back on other information. And so it's really hard at this point to know what kind of uh, condition the president really is in. He sounded a little raspy last night on the phone with Sean Hannity, cleared his throat a couple times, uh, but obviously he's not in the hospital. So we don't really know exactly where he stands in the progression of this disease. Well, there's so much to unpack here, and I mentioned in the introduction, Susan Glasser, the attempted uh, kidnap of Michigan Governor, of City of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The president, uh, well, essentially condemned her for not thanking him. Uh, I mean, this is kind of hard to get your head around, but uh, he said, you know, the FBI intervened, and it was almost as if uh, he was trying to take responsibility for that intervention uh, and uh, uncovering the domestic terror plot by some Michigan militia members. So, um, what are we to make of this? Yeah, I mean, usually, uh, you know, in this country, when uh, somebody is the victim of an act of, you know, potential act of terrorism, uh, we tend to come together and to say, you know, express our concerns. And of course, uh, President Trump has made a particular target of Governor Whitmer. And she yesterday came out very strongly and said, uh, you know, that she thinks the president's dangerous rhetoric had something to do with this. He, he tweeted, of course, uh, famously or infamously liberate Michigan. Uh, it appears that soon after that is when this alleged plot began uh, against the governor. It's really, it's quite extraordinary uh, statement about where we're at in this country. Uh, you know, that, you know, this rhetoric uh, may be in fact activating uh, uh, the kind of uh, violent, at least contemplated violence. Uh, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, somebody said yesterday, this is the kind of story that I used to file from Iraq uh, it's not something that we're used to uh, writing about in the United States. And 
the president's actions toward Governor Whitmer from the beginning of the pandemic have been extraordinary. Uh, he has made a sustained assault on uh, her and other Democratic governors uh, and mayors who, who chose to challenge his mishandling of the pandemic. It, uh, well, it, it bears some serious thinking about, but the president, I think, uh, Peter Baker was uh, also, excuse me, Governor Whitmer was also implying that the president's uh, rhetoric goes back to, well, the debate when he was talking about the Proud Boys and saying that they should stand uh, firm and stand proud or stand by, really, uh, ultimately. Uh, wondering about just something about the Proud Boys, though. They are continuously characterized as white supremacists, and uh, yet they have uh, blacks and Latinos pretty high up in their organization. I don't know what we're to make of that, but they are clearly right-wing and uh, right-wing domestic terrorists. Uh, terrorists is often how they're described. Well, this is the president who doesn't want to talk about that. His own FBI director, Chris Wray, has said that uh, white supremacists and militia groups are really up there as the top uh, domestic threat to the country. But the president then chided him publicly for saying that. Uh, we see a president who wants to focus on Antifa, uh, what he calls left-wing violence. And that obviously is part of his political uh, campaign this fall. But he won't address uh, in any extended way anyway, uh, you know, right-wing uh, violence or groups like Proud Boys. By the way, uh, if you would like to join us, uh, let me invite you to do that now. We're talking generally about fast-moving developments in Washington and that are happening with this administration. Uh, we do indeed want to hear your thoughts, and you can join us at our toll-free number. I invite you to do that. The number to call is 866-733-6786. That number again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk with you both also about what's coming up uh, on Monday with the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. But first... Susan, let me go to you. And by the way, we're talking to Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter Baker is chief White House correspondent with The New York Times. And Susan Glasser is staff writer with The New Yorker. And they are co-authors of a new book called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has uh, indeed called forth um, what can be at least a consideration, a commission to uh, talk about physical and mental health vis-a-vis uh, -vis the 25th Amendment. And what this would mean is... Uh, that a president can be declared disabled or uh, removed involuntarily by joint agreement. But it gets into the weeds here a little bit because it would require the vice president and the majority of cabinet ultimately. But uh, Speaker Pelosi has said, Susan Glasser, that what she's concerned about are future presidents. Uh, well, uh, that's right. I mean, you know, she has said that obviously the timing of uh, this announcement and doing it right before uh, uh, doing it right before the election is meant to cast uh, in sharp relief the current very erratic behavior of the president uh, having a serious and potentially lethal uh, disease just, uh, you know, literally days before the election. Uh, so it's, it's what they used to call a messaging bill up on Capitol Hill. It's not, it's not that this is going to become law and affect current events, but it's meant to send a message about them. Uh, and, you know, again, I think even many Republicans are concerned about uh, the very sort of perplexing and, you know, almost breathtaking shifts of uh, mood and decision making from the president. And, and remember, he's put his own staff 
at the White House in real risk. Uh, it's not just the president, but there's actually a cluster of coronavirus cases right now at the White House and surrounding the White House that, that's the largest uh, source of infections in the city of Washington, D.C. itself right now. And so I think you see actually probably a lot of White House officials who don't know what to think and are worried about their own uh, uh, health and safety being put at risk potentially by their boss. The president has been characterized by many as a super spreader, and uh, he was ranting against his own cabinet members. He was talking about not finding uh, about Pompeo, not finding Hillary's emails, about Barr uh, uh, not uh, responding enough to his wish to uh, actually prosecute Hillary Rodham Clinton and other Democrats, and uh, going after Christopher Ray too, who you mentioned before, Peter Baker, for not investigating. Uh, uh, widespread fraud, as he described it, uh, claims of widespread fraud with respect to elections. Uh, what is this doing for, uh, we're coming up on a, a quick break here, but Peter, what's this doing for his own connection to well, those who were under him? Yeah, I think that he's making very clear his political preferences right now, but certainly in public. One of the things he said yesterday, I thought was really interesting. He actually said he's been doing it in private too, uh, when Bill Barr is telling him he doesn't have enough evidence to prosecute Democrats uh, and wants to gather more first. The president said he has told him specifically, Bill, you have enough, go ahead and do it. That I think is an extra wrinkle in what we've seen uh, of the president who wants to use the law enforcement to prosecute his enemies. We're going to go away for about 60 seconds. We'll continue when we come back and we'll try to get some of your calls on. You can call us at 866-733-6786. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about rather rapid moving developments in Washington with Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker, and Peter Baker, chief White House correspondent with The New York Times, and they are co-authors of a new book called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. And we should mention uh, the fact, uh, Susan Glasser, that uh, James A. Baker III pronounced President Trump as being nuts. <laughs> well, we've had a very interesting, you know, sort of five year long conversation with Jim Baker about the question of President Trump and, and essentially his hostile takeover, as Jared Kushner put it recently to Peter, of the Republican Party. Jim Baker sees himself as a builder of that modern Republican Party and, you know, has been very uncomfortable uh, with uh, the rise of President Trump, uh, not only because Trump, as you everyone knows, has been very scathing about the Bush family with whom, uh, you know, Baker was associated for decades. George H.W. Bush was Jim Baker's best friend from the tennis courts of uh, the Houston Country Club. And together, uh, of course, they had a remarkable kind of turn in Washington throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, and, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, though, Baker, unlike uh, the Bushes chose very reluctantly in 2016 to vote for Trump. He is now actually considering doing so again. And it's really, it's been, you know, kind of frustrating to have this dialogue with him and to have him on the one hand, very critical of uh, not just Trump's character uh, and the sort of incompetence of the administration. Baker was a kind of renowned White House chief of staff, uh, very offended by just the turnover and the inconsistency of it. But also on the substance, he's been very critical. He said at an event the other day, you know, the state of America's international alliances is terrible. Uh, so yet to see him all still willing to consider voting 
for Trump, I think has been, you know, instructive in terms of where the modern Republican Party is, that they are willing to vote for a person whom they disdain both in terms of his character, but also uh, on many ideological grounds. Well, forgive me, but the modern Republican Party is not Jim Baker's Republican Party, and yet he seems to yes. cleave to it in some ways. He can't join uh, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, uh, Stuart Stevens, Carly Fiorina, and the list goes on and on of those members of the GOP who feel that this Republican Party is not the party that they belong to. I want to yeah. talk with both of you about the uh, upcoming Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings, but let me first get a caller on. Uh, actually, let me read an email, and then we'll get to a caller. Trish writes, it seems that President Trump knew that he was positive with COVID before the events he attended, including the debate. As usual, Mr. Trump is to blame for a lot of illness, but is doing everything in his power to prevent the dots from being connected, once again, escaping personal responsibility. That's from Trish, and here is Jim in Fairfield. Jim, join us. Thank you very much, Michael. There was a remarkable uh, moment in the vice presidential debate where the moderator asked the question, what happens if the president loses and he doesn't leave the White House? And that question has never, ever been asked uh, in American history. And then Kamala Harris's uh, response was something like, uh, that's why everyone has to go out to vote. And I thought it was a relatively lukewarm response. She could have said, if uh, the president loses and Joe Biden is president, he will physically remove him. And so I, I was wondering if your guest could comment first on the fact that anyone ever had to ask that question. And then second, uh, why was the response so soft? And I'll take my answer off the air. All right. And thank you for the question. Peter Baker, you want to handle that? Yeah, it's not a question that's typically asked at a uh, presidential <laughs> or vice presidential debate. I think that's sort of kind of been an assumed uh, you know, tradition that nobody really questioned up until now. But the president has made it very clear that he considers this election, even though it hasn't even been ha uh, held yet, to be illegitimate, unless, of course, it shows that he wins. Uh, he has for months, and in particular in, in the last few weeks, uh, emphatically said that it's being rigged, it's being, uh, it's corrupt, it's being stolen without any real hard evidence of anything on a widespread basis. It's, it's basically stuff he's pulling out of air. Uh, mostly, even what is one of his former 2016 aides told me that this was just being done in order to create an excuse uh, to point to if he does lose. But it has real consequence because if he does lose, but, but there is a, it's a close enough race that it sows suspicion with the public and undermines, obviously, the credibility and le legitimacy of American democracy. So that's the real concern at this point. And there's a concern, and as a result, the caller mentioned the vice presidential debate. Uh, this was a, uh, another one of those questions that was evaded. Both candidates, the, uh, both uh, candidates for the vice presidency, uh, the president, vice president, and Senator Harris, evaded a number of questions. But uh, uh, Vice President Pence uh, managed to evade the whole question entirely about, you know, whether action should be taken if the Democrats win, uh, where and President uh, Trump refuses to leave. Yeah, you're not going to see Vice President Pence allow any space to be seen between him and the president. That's just sort of his way of operating at this point. So he either will embrace whatever a pre the President Trump has said or find ways of uh, avoiding uh, addressing it if he finds it uh, something uncomfortable for himself. And CNN is reporting, uh, let me go to you on this, Susan Glasser, that President Trump has signed off on a roughly $1.8 trillion stimulus proposal to present to Speaker Pelosi, but if White House and Pelosi agree, will the Senate GOP go along? 
Well, uh, they have been the primary reason why uh, there has not been more progress. And, you know, up until now, it, the two trillion number has been, uh, you know, sort of the, the floor for the Democratic proposal. Uh, you know, they haven't been willing to go underneath that. So, you know, there's still some some distance between them. Uh, it's also logistically at this point, we're so close to the election uh, and it's, it's, it's hard to see it passing. Uh, I, what's interesting to me is President Trump's repeated flip-flopping on this question just this week alone. Uh, and it does suggest he understands the political peril he's in at this point, uh, you know, so few, few weeks away from the election and he's trailing by double digits in the polls nationally. Uh, of course, it's an extremely popular measure, the idea of providing Americans with stimulus relief at this point, uh, you know, with the economy uh, looking like it's, it's nowhere near the uh, V-shaped re recovery that the president has been touting for so long. But, you know, experienced Capitol Hill watchers are still very dubious that this is actually going to pass and become law before the election. It's, it's, it's very unlikely in my view. And a couple of emails I want to read here. Stephanie writes, so when are we going to take seriously that we have a maniac president who incites violence? His first words after a governor is almost kidnapped and murdered is to blame her. Marsha writes, saying Trump is not in the hospital misrepresents where he is. He is living in an outpatient clinic that supposedly can handle a lot of his medical, if not his psychiatric needs. And let me bring another caller on. Colin joins us next. Colin, good morning. Good morning. Amy Coney Barrett accepted honoraria from the Alliance Defending Freedom, an, an anti-gay organization that filed a brief in the Lawrence versus Texas case, arguing that American citizens should be arrested for being gay or lesbian. She also signed a newspaper advertisement calling abortion barbaric, implicitly arguing that women who exercise their abortion rights are baby killers. Should the Democrats avoid criticism, criticism of Barrett's extreme views, uh, Republicans obviously are going to say that's attacking her religion. However, most Americans do support Roe versus Wade as well as same-sex marriage. Thank you for the question. And Susan Glasser, your take. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I think, of course, uh, a person's, uh, especially a, a potential Supreme Court justice's uh, uh, articulated policy views are not only fair game, but very much at, at the heart of this. What I've been struck by is how Republicans, uh, you know, were determined to pursue this line of criticism against Democrats, that, that they are uh, attacking someone's religion, that they are, you know, sexist, that they are going after uh, Judge Barrett, no matter what Democrats said in the first 24 hours after uh, the super spreader event uh, that was the, the appointment <laughs> announcement uh, of uh, Judge Barrett. In fact, that's exactly what they did. Democrats were extremely restrained and disciplined, I thought. And I was curious about this. And then I, I went and I, I looked at Fox and I looked at some of the conservative commentary. It was fascinating. It was like essentially the Democrats didn't do what we wanted. They didn't fall into our trap, but we're just going to ignore that and say it anyways. And I think right now that tells you a lot about our politics. Both sides are just saying what they plan to say to their own bases anyways. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's what happens, I guess, this close to an election. We've given up on persuading uh, people, and it's all about mobilizing 
uh, those who we think are already on our side. And what's interesting is, are we seeing a situation where the traditional political calculus uh, around the Supreme Court that it's motivating Republicans more than Democrats, uh, that even on the abortion issue, that that's going to uh, be more electorally effective uh, for anti-abortion forces than for uh, abortion rights supporters? I think we are potentially looking at upending that. Uh, you know, you see, obviously, public opinion polls show a a broad swath of Americans, including many Republicans who are in favor of abortion rights, who are in favor of upholding Roe versus Wade, uh, you know, the very heavy handed decision of Republicans to proceed with this appointment before the election. Again, extremely unpopular, even among many Republican voters. Public opinion polls show a very strong majority of Americans are against this move uh, before the election. And so I think it may proved to be more of a motivator for Democrats than Republicans this year. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the senators actually handle it at the hearing. And remember that from one point of view uh, alone, it's, it's kind of strong for Trump, which is every minute that we're not talking about the coronavirus, uh, you know, from his point of view is a good minute politically. Well, in fact, uh, one can't escape the fact, uh, I think, that the hearings will be largely tiptoeing around certain kinds of things, but they can't with the coronavirus. I mean, the Democrats, uh, Chuck Schumer has said, uh, Peter Baker, that healthcare, healthcare, healthcare is what she ought to be essentially asked about, and uh, particularly with respect to her positions that she has forged in the past or that she has taken in the past. Um, but they're going to have to do this uh, in conjunction with uh, coronavirus, and they're going to have to try to as I say, tiptoe around it because of the, they, they don't want to go the Kavanaugh route. They don't want this to be a spectacle. And I think they also are very wary of um, making anything seem like it's an attack on religion, uh, particularly after our own Senator Feinstein uh, said something about the dogma lives loudly in you. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to see something that's on the one hand, supposedly avoiding politics where the Democrats are concerned, but uh, trying to indeed make politics a big part of it. Yeah, it's inevitable, of course. But look, they're, they're going to try. The Democrats are going to try to push the uh, the argument that Obamacare is on the line because the case is coming to the Supreme Court. Um, it's it's probably uh, mostly legal experts who've talked to us don't think this case is quite the uh, the case the Democrats are making it out to be. That it's not likely to actually overturn uh, Obamacare altogether. But obviously, it does remind us that issues like Obamacare are what uh, matter at the Supreme Court, and, and that the you know, Chief Justice Roberts, who was twice voted to uphold it, uh, you know, could lose that majority uh, if, if Amy Coney Barrett differs from him. He, she did write at one point that uh, Chief Justice Roberts' rationale for preserving Obamacare in one of his earlier decisions strained, uh, you know, strained the language of the law. She definitely seemed to suggest it was a wrongly decided decision. That doesn't mean she would you know, tell us what she's going to do on a future decision. But uh, that's certainly a line you'll hear a lot from the Democrats. And one reason is because in 2018, healthcare they feel like even more than Trump, uh, was a useful uh, line of attack for them in the midterm elections. So they want to try to focus on that as much as they can in these final 25 days. And let me read some comments that are coming in. Rosie writes, Trump was chaotic, bitter, and vengeful before taking dexamethasone. Uh, but now that he's taking dexamethasone, he's become downright unhinged. Shame on the doctors for obfuscating his condition and for allowing him to run his own treatment plan. This is not good for the country. 
Curtis writes, uh, and I guess this is reading tea leaves uh, on Curtis's part, and I'll go to you on this, Susan. He says that Donald has an escape plan. If he loses the election, he'll continue to destroy our governmental institutions during his lame duck period. Then he will resign, and Pence will step in and try to give him the broadest pardon Barr can possibly write, and Barr will then resign with the same pardon. <laughs> you know, I, I'm exhausted by all the possible scenarios. Uh, it's going to be a crazy few weeks. What can I say? Uh, you know, I do think the president has made it very clear uh, that he is extremely unhappy with, uh, in particular, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, Barr. It's less clear, uh, although obviously he, he seems to be infuriated that there aren't going to be charges before the election that are brought uh, by the Justice Department. If we can rely on that, uh, who knows? I would say when Trump uh, signals this kind of displeasure with his officials, it is uh, certainly worth taking him seriously. Uh, you know, the very day after the 2018 midterm elections, what did he do? He fired Jeff Sessions. Uh, and I do believe that were he to win re-election, certainly Christopher Wray uh, is very likely to be out at the FBI, and there could be an even more wholesale uh, uh, house cleaning. Well, is it also fair to say that one of the reasons that President uh, wants so desperately and tenaciously to hold on to the offices, he knows that uh, if he's replaced by Joe Biden, he will be prosecuted? Well, it is interesting that Biden has made clear he wouldn't stand in the way of that, uh, you know, which which would be a break, of course. Uh, no, but the courts know. over in New York where you are aren't necessarily going to follow that. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, that that would be a sharp break from tradition. Uh, you know, look at Richard Nixon and his pardon by Jerry Ford uh, uh, preemptively was very significant, uh, probably in uh, Ford's defeat, but also I think most historians have come around to the view, uh, whatever their political views, that that was the right thing. But, you know, Trump is a very different character and the pileup of disclosures about his finances seems to be escalating. Uh, and there's still enormous and significant troubling conflicts of interest. We don't know anything about the New York Times is continuing to publish its revelations, just posted another article today uh, on what they found in the tax disclosures that we, the American public, have still never seen. And here's Ernold. Ernold, thank you for waiting. You're on the air with us. Welcome. Yeah. Hi, Michael. Thanks for taking my comments. So uh, this is more of a speculative kind of thing, but uh, assuming that Democrats win big in this election and take the Senate and the presidency. I wanted to ask, uh, what are the options for Republicans going forward, given that uh, they've essentially been running on this platform of uh, 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 white grievance, white grievances, and uh, they've done so very successfully up until now, but with changing demographics. And also, is there a path towards redemption for Republicans? Uh, in such a scenario. So I'll take my comment offline. Thank you. All right. Thank you for that. Susan Glass, you want to reflect on the future of the GOP, particularly since we were talking about how different it was or is from James Baker's GOP? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I would say, first of all, we don't know how this ends. And I do think that that will help to shape uh, the story. Uh, obviously, a decisive repudiation of President Trump uh, and Republicans in this Falls elections uh, would would affect, I think, uh, what kind of lessons uh, the Republicans take away from it. Uh, but clearly, look at the the polls. Uh, more than forty percent of the American public appears to have stuck with Donald Trump through all of this, and is likely to do so even in the election. Remember, that would be a historic landslide. Uh, you know, if the polls today 
were accurate. Uh, you know, 41% approval rating, if that translated to the election, it would on the one hand be a historic landslide defeat of Trump. But on the other hand, it would mean that more than 40% of the American public still stuck with him. Those people aren't going to go away. Uh, and in that sense, Trumpism outlives Trump. You know, you will certainly see some Republicans, especially here in Washington, uh, repudiating Trump or saying they never really liked him or they just held their nose and went along with him uh, after all. Uh, but I, I, I think that uh, a full reckoning is is going to be very hard in in the polarized politics that we have. I really do, uh, and uh, you know his unique character uh, may disappear from the scene. Whether it will disappear, whether it's now or four years from now, uh, but the the substantive embrace not only of a sort of nationalist populism, uh, but the shrinking of the Republican base to a, a white hardcore nationalist. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because we're coming up on a break and we're going to be shifting gears. But I want to thank both of you for being with us and remind listeners that Susan Glasser and Peter Baker have a new book out. It's called The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker III. Appreciate both of you and thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Another segment of Forum coming up. We're going to look at some police measures or measures to at least... Uh, Move to our police reform locally and throughout Northern California. Stay tuned. That's up ahead. I'm Michael Krasny.